70 to 80% of our young people are no longer part of a faith community, are no longer practicing their faith by the time they're in their 20s. Sometimes it's a drift, sometimes it's cataclysmic, but either way, we are losing tremendous numbers of young people. College is a very unique atmosphere. So college is actually, for most people, the first environment in which they experience a form of discipleship. Now, it may not be a good form, but there's a form of discipleship. Now we have this, this incubator, this environment where you have intensive companionship being practiced, i.e. discipleship. The people who are overseeing that are 99% non-Christian, literally 99% non-Christian. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. There is a law, I call it the iron law of education, that you are going to be sculpted and become more and more like your teachers. By creating a college, we can develop an environment where we're using this iron law of education for our good and not for our harm. And it can be an environment where faith is, is grown and sustained rather than squashed. We got out a clean sheet of paper and tried to reimagine what higher education could look like in the 21st century. We organized Sattler College around what we call the three C's. So the first C is cost. Our tuition is 80% less than the tuition of the average college in America. The next C is the core curriculum. The core speaks volumes as to the values that any institution has and that you will acquire. Our core curriculum includes Greek, and Hebrew, Old Testament, New Testament, church history, statistics, economics. It is a much more focused set of classes around issues that we believe are important to any well-rounded Christian today. Our final C is Christian discipleship. Our students have to go through a four-year discipleship program where in small groups they are developed in areas like their prayer life, areas like fellowship, evangelism, the ability to walk in holiness and purity with the Lord. These three C's taken together can form a revolution in higher education. Well, it's an honor to have Dr. Kuravilla with us here today. He is the founder of Sattler College and is uh, very passionate about uh, leveraging these things that can tend to take people away from faith and wants to utilize and leverage them to build faith and equip and and continue to spread Jesus's peaceful revolution. So thank you again, Brother Finney, for joining us today. And um, we'd like to maybe talk about the, the vision behind Sattler College. And so maybe you could just share a bit of that with us. As you heard on that, that small clip there, we have a number of, of problems with the current system, and the current system, I think, is, is quite evidently broken when you look at how many people who are professing Christians are, are weakened in their faith or even lose their faith outright. And I'm, I'm often struck by how, in, particularly in the West, how when, when people consider college— they almost think it's okay that that's a time where you the expression that people use is to sow your wild oats where you're you're allowed to go off and live this party lifestyle the the typical person who goes through college is more likely by the time they're done to be addicted to pornography to have engaged in sexual promiscuity to have experimented with drugs to have cheated I mean, all the, all the wrong behaviors, they're more likely to be engaged in by the time they're done compared to when they started. And so those are, those are some of the more obvious ways that the current system is broken. But I would say maybe even more profoundly, there's a general worldview osmosis that happens during the college years where people lose that that conviction, that ability to stand for something that is, is, is good and right and holy. And instead it becomes something that it's just, it's complicated. You no, know, who can really know? And there's this view over here and that view over here. And let's not be too dogmatic. And it sounds very smart and intellectual and sophisticated, but in reality, it's, it's an elegant way to rub away convictions and to rub away what we should be 
standing for. Now, in distinction, what college could become, so that was all negative, but in distinction, what college could become is something very enlivening and something that strengthens people in their faith. They, they begin to understand rightly the scriptures. They begin to, to evangelize much more intentionally and effectively than they've ever done before. They form bonds within a strong community of people that are lifting them higher, not dragging them down. So we have a tremendous need today for a, a complete overhaul, a complete revolution in education. And for those of us who, who do believe doctrines like non-resistance or, or peacemaking, uh, who do believe in things like the head covering, uh, separation from the world, uh, the permanence of marriage, these kinds of things that it's, it, that there's not a lot of place. I would say there's, there's not, there's no places really from a, a, a four year bachelor's degree perspective where you can send your child and know that they're going to be fortified in those beliefs. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that it, with the exception of Sattler college, here we are in almost 2020 that, that we don't have that opportunity for, our young people to be strengthened in a rigorous way in those convictions, and then also to prepare for their career and and to be launched out into something higher and greater than they've they've had before. So, how long have you had this vision? And I'm just kind of curious, um, what were the first steps, like the literal steps you have to take to actually uh, implement the vision? We'd, we'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I, so I was a an RA. An RA is a basically you live in the dorms with the students and you supervise student life. So I was an RA uh, at, at Harvard from 1997 to 2004. So seven years I lived with the students there and I got to see very up close and personal what one of the top universities in the world is like from the perspective of academics as well as residential student life. And of course I also went to college before that and and so when I was there, I just saw so many weaknesses that the wheels started to turn and I started to form ideas about what could education look like if it were done differently. And those ideas were further crystallized with different readings I was doing. And then later on, when I was a resident, I medical resident, I, would, I was involved in teaching the, the medical students at, at Harvard and again, you could just see so many different ways in which we are utterly failing our young people. I mean, it's like sheep to the slaughter. And we are, are just sending them to the exact conditions that are going to be hostile for their faith. So uh, these ideas started to crystallize. And then in 2014, what we did was we formally petitioned the state of Massachusetts. So in terms of how it actually works... I didn't know any of this when we started, but you can't just open up a college in, in the U.S. and say, oh, we're a college. It doesn't work. You have to get approval from the government, and it happens at the state level. And so every state has a, a body. At the, in Massachusetts, it's called the BHE, the Board of Higher Education. And you have to go to them with a petition for, it's called Degree Granting Authorization, and they will, if they accept your, your, and your proposal and grant your petition, then you can grant the degrees that they approve. So we went to them in 2016. We started in the late summer, 16, early fall, uh, I'm sorry, 14. Uh, in the late summer of 2014, early fall of 2014, and went to the, the Board of Higher Education or the Department of Higher Education and laid out this proposal uh, it's a very long, very arduous process to go through this. Uh, it's a it was a 700 page application that we had to submit. Uh, very involved. We had to hire lots of attorneys and consultants, you name it, to put this all together. The whole thing took a little bit more than two years to gain that approval, and we received that degree granting authorization in December of 2016 from the Board of Higher Education of Massachusetts. Uh, I, there were some moments in there I didn't think it would work. Uh, there were a couple moments where I nearly lost hope entirely. They, we had a lot of challenges, particularly because we are an explicitly Christian institution. 
And you can imagine in today's world how delicate that is. But thankfully, by God's grace, we were able to, to gain that approval after that, that two-year journey. One of the concerns I think a lot of people may have or a question in their mind might be, you know, thinking about a lot of higher education um, or even just churches or organizations in general, you know, start out with with a a vision or mission in mind, but there tends to be this, you know, missional drift from that original vision. And, and I think um, one of the maybe a hesitancy for some people coming from various uh, conservative backgrounds uh, might be that, you know, a lot of higher education institutions have started out Christian uh, and then eventually, you know, where they started and where they're at today is is different. Your all's vision, or at least one of them, is equipping Jesus's peaceful revolution, uh, light the world through relational discipleship and academic excellence. What are your thoughts about how to, you know, why why has there been that drift in higher education, and um, and what are some of the things that need to be done to keep it from from happening? The first thing I'll say to that question, which is a very common question that we receive, is we need to be careful first not to have a double standard. So we have at Sattler College, we have a range of of people in terms of backgrounds. We have people from conservative Anabaptist backgrounds, Protestant evangelical backgrounds. Uh, we have a student from, uh, from a Coptic background, uh, Egyptian Coptic. So all over, all over the, the map, so to speak, with respect to religious backgrounds. There are some, I would say, especially who come from that more conservative Anabaptist background where their basic choice is, is not, do I go to Sattler college versus 10 other colleges? It's college or no college at all. Uh, and, and so we're really the only option on the table with regard to a four year bachelor's degree. And one of the very common objections that people raise is they'll say, Oh, look at, at other Christian institutions and how they've drifted, exactly what you said. And they'll say, for that reason, we're not sure that people should go to college. The problem with that logic is that if you're consistent, then you shouldn't go to be part of a church either, because this has been the problem of the church, right? Like virtually every, if not every church in history has also drifted. And those who are from conservative Anabaptist backgrounds know this very well, that if you look at the Lancaster Conference, if you look at some of these conservative Mennonite conferences, they've virtually all over time become more and more, quote, liberal. Um, not the greatest of all terms, but we'll use that. And uh, and have what's happened is that those, those churches have then had to be... Uh, basically there's been splits and people have come off and started their own congregations and people do that all the time. They recognize it. They don't have a problem with that. But then in the world of higher education, again, there's a double standard and people say, Oh, well, just because there's been drift, we can't participate in that. I mean, it's just, it's not fair. And so, so that's the first thing I would point out is that it's, it's a bit hypocritical to use that kind of logic about higher education and not use it about the church in terms of how to correct that. This is a, a book that I don't have any uh, affiliation with, but I, I do recommend that people read this book who have any any role in leadership in any kind of a a Christian nonprofit, whether that's a church or a university or a parachurch organization. The book is called Mission Drift. Uh, it's a it's a book that came out a couple years ago that outlines this phenomenon of of exactly what you said. Harvard University is the very first example we have of that in the U.S. Started in 1636 and started by Puritans, very, very Christian institution. And, you know, of course you look at it today and it's the bastion of counter-Christian ideas and anti-Christian ideas. So this is a, a, a very widely appreciated phenomenon. And in fact, what happens is that, and without getting into all the, the legal nuances and, and structural nuances that are described in the book, is that when people start off an institution, they typically know the people that they're working with. It's a very high trust environment. And they assume, oh, well, it's just a few of us buddies. We're going to be fine. We don't necessarily need to think about what we're going to look like 100 years from now. And so how they organize themselves with respect to governance, 
their, their documents, their articles of incorporation, their bylaws, all those types of, of documents are not very well conceived. And with respect to preventing mission drift. And then what happens is, of course, that, that initial generation dies off and it goes to another generation that simply doesn't know the intent of the founder or they don't have that same conviction set. And then what also happens is often in the name of fundraising, they'll go off and want to raise hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from, from various people. And not surprisingly, those, those individuals are wealthy for a reason. They may have often achieved that wealth in ways that are not the most godly. And there are strings attached there. And they might say, well, if I'm going to do this, then I want a board seat or I want condition X, Y, and Z. And so then, then what happens is the institution starts to drift. And once it goes down that path, it's very hard to put the toothpaste back into the tube again, so to speak. And, and you just, you can't undo it. And so, so what, what needs to be done, and this is outlined very, very nicely in that book, Mission Drift, is from the outset to put in a wide variety, not just one or two, but a wide variety of, of guards and checks so that that doesn't happen. So I'll just give one example of how we've done this at Sattler. We have multiple examples, but one example is that, actually I'll give two. One, the first is that if the institution ever changes what it's called, it's founding precepts, it's on our website. So it's affirming things like peacemaking, non-resistance, not being okay with divorce and remarriage, uh, things like that. Then the funding goes away. So that's very powerful. So to actually have funding work for you, not against you, is very, very powerful. A second thing is that our board members have to affirm annually our founding precepts, including that if they change their views, they agree to resign immediately. So if you can control the board, that's half the battle because the board ultimately has control over who the president is and the president has control of the institution. And so these are, these are examples of devices that can be used that people don't typically do in their articles of incorporation and bylaws and they drift as a result. So we've tried to do much, much better in that. Uh, is anything fool, foolproof? Of course not. And, you know, in the end we need to say, that we think we've done as well as we can do for our generation, for our time. Can I guarantee anything over a hundred years? No, I can't, but I don't believe anybody else can either. And so I, I think that's, that's a realistic, humble way to deal with the reality of the fallen human nature and how institutions do drift as a result of that. Um, two questions that are actually um, two sides of the same coin. Um, what kind of students do you expect to get at Sattler? And then also, what can those students expect from Sattler as they arrive there for the first day, say day one? Uh, what are they going to encounter? And then uh, subsequently then uh, throughout their time there. About 70 to 80% of our current students, we have two classes that are already enrolled. They come from conservative Anabaptist backgrounds. So not surprisingly, we have the highest affinity with our doctrinal positions with those churches. And we're, we're happy for that. Very glad for that. But there are, and this is very encouraging for me coming from a Protestant evangelical background. There are a number of students that we have that come from Protestant evangelical backgrounds that have had similar awakenings and experiences that all three of us have had in our journeys. And they come in and frankly, they add such energy and conviction because they've had to fight for their beliefs you know, for people who are born and raised, say, in a Mennonite church, they haven't necessarily had to, had to go against the grain or fight for their beliefs. Those students have. And I just love having those students at Sattler because they often believe the things that they believe with much more tenacity than our students from plain or conservative Anabaptist backgrounds who, who struggle sometimes. and they, they don't even know if they believe these, these things. And most of them at Sattler at least do. But but it's, it's certainly a higher level of conviction there. So they can expect a, a, a group of, of people that are wanting to grow in that. And we're very, very explicit in our application and our website saying, if you want to come to Sattler College, you are going to be discipled 
and strengthen in all of the convictions that we have on our founding precepts. We're going to push you uh, in that way. And so they're going to expect to, to receive that. And then we weave that in this, this whole concept of, of discipleship into basically everything from dorm life to our classes to, we call them journey groups, which are these, these small groups where we have accountability and, and structured times of instruction where we can work through a, a wide variety of issues. Uh, and, and they can expect after four years to be much, much, much stronger in their faith. As a result, we, we, we require uh, actually things like uh, t- time and evangelism. We have them sharing their faith from their very first year. And, and so it's, I think, a very exciting experience for, for our students. And we always tell, tell anyone, come, come see for yourself. Come to Boston. Come meet our, our students. Come see our, our campus and our staff and see if you don't have that same experience of, of growth and, and envisioning the potential that a young person can have when they're positioned in that kind of environment. So I think you would agree with the, the statement uh, or, or the view that um, the, the higher education system is broken. And so what are, what are the resolutions that you feel Sattler answers in, in response to that? If, 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 the, if it's broken out there, obviously the attempt is that here's, here's where we see the cracks we're seeing the leaks and we're, we're trying to, um, to fix those things. Uh, what is your view on that? We have summarized that in a, a mnemonic. We call it the three C's. The three C's are cost, curriculum, and then character, or sometimes we call that Christian discipleship, either one. So the first is the cost. So everyone knows that the cost of higher education is out of control. And uh, so we have, used a variety of means to have our tuition be about 80% less than the average private school in America. So that's, that's exciting. The second is curriculum. So if you look at, at the original curricula of colleges and universities in, in England, places like Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and Yale, places like that, you would find a very admirable curriculum. Everyone had to, for example, know Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. If you couldn't demonstrate proficiency in those three languages, you couldn't graduate, for example, from Harvard, because you were barely a, a literate member of society, because people believed that you needed to be able to read the Bible in its original languages, unfiltered, without the, the curtain of a translator between you, and, and then to be able to engage in church history. Latin, obviously, is important for church history understanding theology, understanding church history. This was all a required, part of required uh, courses that, that students would take at any of these universities. The core curriculum is in many ways a mirror of the values of the society that the university is, is representing. And, and so today you look at the core curriculum of many universities, it's things like gender studies and queer studies and it's things that you look at and the things that they represent and that they teach there are very very different than what we would we would teach the way that history is taught the way that the sciences are taught is different the way that virtually every subject is taught and except for Sattler College not one college in America requires Greek and Hebrew today not one single college in all of the country, it requires that. When it used to be the case that 100% of the colleges required it. So, I mean, that, that shows a very profound shift that's happened in the last few centuries. And so, so that notion of, of having a deeply Christian worldview, where our, our graduates are going to be able to engage in biblical texts, they're going to be able to have a, a great working knowledge of church history, of biology from a, a Christian perspective— is the second C. And then the third C is character or Christian discipleship. And we touched on that a little bit already, where we want to have our, our students experience the, this intensive companionship, which is how Jesus did his discipleship, right? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they just spent lots and lots of time with him as their mentor, as their, as their teacher, and they grew in their character as, as a result of that. 
there was, of course, teaching that he did. There was various tests that he had them undergo. And so in, in our humble manner of approaching that, we, we similarly have those elements built into our, our own discipleship. So you mentioned discipleship. Um, how much time can there be for discipleship when you're so actively involved academically? Um, how do you do that at Sattler? So it's the nice thing about this model of discipleship, it's not merely confined to, say, a group of people sitting around in a circle doing a Bible study. I mean, certainly that's a very important par- part of it and maybe even highlight highlights of that. But for example, I taught biology last year and we would open up every class in prayer and we would do our biology from the perspective of thinking about God as the designer of life and to to look at our our cells our cellular structure macromolecules you name it from the perspective of this is not accidental collisions of molecules that produce this but this is studying the mind of god and how the the infinite mind has decided to architect life as we understand it. So it, it really is, it's worship when you study biology in that way. And I have often said that some of my most profound experiences as a Christian have come in my biology courses and in medical school, where I remember when I was in medical studying the immune system. Uh, wow, if I, I don't see how anyone could study the immune system that God has given all of us and not want to just fall on your knees and cry out to God about his beauty and how, how great he is. And so that happens there. I, there's other courses we have, Christian doctrines in Greek and Hebrew. And you can just imagine how, how much when you have a, a Christian worldview at your foundation, how that, that just works its way into every single subject. And I, it's it's very hard for me not to to say that the the best education is one that is infused with the truth of scripture and the christian worldview in in every single subject and so so yeah so it's there in our our journey groups and bible studies but it's also in our courses it's also in how we relate to each other every single day we have something we call it tea time where it's modeled after the british system at 10 o'clock we sing together we sing hymns together every day at 10 o'clock, and then we have these short devotions that different staff members, soon-to-be students, give. Uh, and that's a very, very nice part of our day where we can just take a take a breather together. The whole campus comes together, and we have some amazing singers at, at Sattler College that put me to shame, put most of the staff to shame. And it is so life-giving to be a part of those tea times and to hear those devotions and to sing the songs together. Uh, so it really does infiltrate all aspects of life. I don't want to take the conversation in a different direction, but just a, a thought that I had, and I'm sure it's, well, I know it's it's a question that a lot of people have because they feel like, especially when it comes to just education and more specifically higher education, is you you have the if you have the Bible in one hand and you have science in the other and um, you, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, you, if you believe the one, you just have to completely discredit the other. Um, you, either you take the Bible or you take science. And how do you feel um, about that? Or some of the, the people who have those challenges uh, that, you know, they, they start out, you know, they, they grow up in a Christian home and uh, maybe they're, they're Christians. They go to, college or university and all of a sudden they you know they're studying biology and these sciences and and those are some things that start to to tear them away from their faith and so what's the resolve in that it's been said that nature is the 67th book of the bible and that if if we if you're rightly reading nature then it will have perfect harmony with the rest of the scriptures so we certainly don't need to see science and nature as our our foe, but rather as our friend. And what's so important to 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 do, though, is to to recognize that 
most of the time when you hear criticisms offered, they're offered from the perspective of people who have never studied science, serious science. When I say that, I mean uh, things like calculus and college or graduate level biology. And so they're really speaking from a position of simply not knowing what, what they're talking about. Right. And uh, I, I get this all the time where, where people have very strong views, but it's not rooted in, in a study that is, I think by any measure, even they would themselves say is not something where they'd be able to have a, a, a meaningful conversation about journal articles that were published in, in articles like in journals, like uh, science or nature or the New England journal of medicine. And, and so, you know, to be able to first say that let get, at least be able to get to the point where you can understand modern science, read the journal articles be able to look at an acrylamide gel, be able to to look at uh, a mass spec or an NMR and be able to read it and say like, oh, I understand what this is, what it means, how it functions. It, that gives you an ability to have, I think, just some, some credibility and real intelligence in that. Most of what people say there, they're saying second or third hand from what they heard from somebody else. And that's just not the right way to do it. You want to be able to engage in primary sources. And so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that there was a writer in the fourth century who who commented on how damaging it can be when people who don't know the sciences, it's amazing, this is fourth century, speak on matters that they don't understand. And it can be very off-putting to to people on the outside because they put those views on the same plane as the resurrection, for example. And, oh, you have to believe X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, you're not a Christian or whatnot. And we've actually done a very poor job at alienating the world because we're speaking in very strong dogmatic terms, not really knowing and, and being able to engage in intelligent conversation there and alienating people. The last thing I'll say is that is that I think a much greater risk is that if you don't do it well, then what has happened, and I've seen this happen so many times myself, is that the alternatives are one very narrow perspective on science and the Bible or an outright rejection of all of that, and it becomes just someone who becomes a full-scale materialist, Darwinist, that has no room in their, their thinking anymore, for what I would say is a much more biblical worldview. And so I think our students, I know that our students at Sattler, and again, I would invite anyone to come and, and talk to them and s- sit in our classes and see, will say that their love of the Bible and their love of science has been strengthened. It's not an either or. It's, it's really that if you do it well, both come together so beautifully. Uh, I'll, I'll give one just very small example of this. So if you do, there's, a, there's an argument, it's called the anthropic principle, which notes that if you do standard physics and, and ask questions like, uh, what would happen if the strength of gravity was a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker? So as it turns out by, and I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head here, but it's something like one in 10 to the 20th. So picture the number one with 20 zeros after it. I mean, these are numbers that we can not even put in our mind. If it were different by one in 10 to the 20th, so the smallest fraction, which we can't even consider, then everything would collapse. Everything would, would basically, uh, if it were gravity were a little bit stronger, you couldn't have anything like planets and solar systems. Everything would collapse and it would be one giant lump of, of matter, one basically star that couldn't support life or it would all, if it were a little bit weaker, everything would fly apart and it would be just hydrogen gas. You couldn't have things like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen form. That is today what secular atheist scientists will tell you. These are not Christian scientists. You could go to MIT or Stanford or Harvard. They'll say that and they'll say, this is true. This is incredible evidence for the existence of a designer who has tuned, that's just one constant, one number here, one, one value here. That's the strength of gravity, but that applies to the strength of electromagnetic attraction, the so-called strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, right? There's multiple 
evidence is here that using modern science, you can give very, very strong evidence for the existence of design. The only counter you can give to that is one of two things. We either just got lucky, right? So the universe, we're just so lucky that this universe happens to be, uh, when you start adding up or multiplying these probabilities, you, you work out that it's much less than one in 10 to the 200th. Again, numbers that we can't even conceptualize. Uh, that that uh, we have a, a universe that supports life in. Or you might say there's some multiverse and it's just cranking out multiple universes, billions and billions of universes. And we got lucky in that we happen to live in the right universe, but there's just billions of universes and they're all slightly different. But then you realize, well, what's the evidence for the multiverse? There's none, right? And no scientist out there will say, again, these are atheist secular scientists will say, there's even a shred of evidence for a multiverse. And so you realize that the, the counter argument to the Christian theistic perspective is one of either we got super lucky in ways that we can't even fathom how lucky we are, or an article of faith that there's this multiverse out there that we happen to, we can't, we can't see, we can't observe, we can't know about in any scientific sense, but we, we're just going to take that as our explanation there. So this is an example of how when you do science well, it, it should strengthen your faith and it should be something that, that dramatically supports your belief in the, the uniqueness uh, and identity of God in forming the universe as he has. So we're talking about worship really in the studies. That's kind of what you said. Mm-hmm. You used the word worship. Um, you have hymns, you have prayer, you have uh, discipleship, um, and you also just happen to have five different congregations of followers of the way right there in Boston. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious um, what overlap, if any, uh, might take place uh, there between followers of the way and, and Sattler. Yeah. Many of the Sattler students are members of Followers of the Way, and obviously we're delighted for that, and we, we certainly love the opportunity to, to be in communion with our, our, our Sattler students there. It's not a requirement, so people don't have to come, and in fact, there's different churches that don't allow that, uh, so for complex reasons. Certain churches will send their students to Boston and say, you can attend, but you can't become a part of their communion. You can't be quote-unquote members of the church. Uh, so, so that's fine. And hey, we, we recognize that, that there's complexities here that particularly for young people that are still under the authority of their, their parents and their home congregations, we understand those, those complexities. Uh, but for those who do want to be a part, we think it's a great opportunity to experience an environment that would be probably very challenging, challenging in a good way, stretching in a good way to, to what they've, they've not experienced before. So for example, we have a weekly Lord's Supper and communion as you do here, of course, in Kampala. And many of our students say that they absolutely love that time where they can see what a healthy body looks like in an agape uh, together to see how how we where where the majority of us are not from Anabaptist backgrounds, uh, people like myself and and others, uh, and to see us and how we work out the practice of the Bible in our own individual and congregational lives, I think many students find that very refreshing. We have we have a, a more diverse congregation eth- ethnically, with people from places like China and Haiti and other other countries that is, again, I think going to make a a very unique experience for them. So one of the important things, obviously, in any organization or uh, especially uh, an institute for higher education is putting together the right team, you know, having the right staff and and team built. Uh, How did you go about uh, doing that, selecting the right people? Because obviously you're not just trying to um, impart you know, great academic knowledge and, and skill, obviously that is a major component. You want it to be a, a, uh, a rigorous education opportunity for these students. 
how did you go about uh, really finding the right people and putting them in those places uh, to be able to embody the vision that Sattler has, especially in light of those three C's that you talked about? Yeah, that that is that is an excellent question, and any any organization is going to be the most shaped by its its leaders and its teachers. I mean, there's there's no doubt, and so I regard our hiring as probably the most important job that we have, getting the right team, as you said, put together. So it starts with the top, and so our president is Dean Taylor. So many of of our of your listeners will know Dean Taylor. Jan, you obviously worked with Dean on on Lesvos uh, when you were in Greece, and so we we feel very good about him as our president uh, in terms of setting the right tone and for not wanting to compromise around our our founding precepts and our core convictions. There, he himself has children who attend Sattler, and so he's got a dual perspective as a parent of children going through it, as well as our president. And, and then we have a, uh, especially at the highest levels, people like Zach Johnson, who I think some of, some of your listeners will know, uh, Michael Miller. There are, are several of us who are at the, at the top of the organization that have a very, very, I would say not just an agreement, but an advocacy for our founding precepts. And at the faculty level and and going on down, we're doing our best. So it's we have this this ladder that we have have uh, used in our hiring scheme, where the people at the highest, who are, for example, uh, at the senior administration, who are leading journey groups, who are teaching biblical studies, doctrines, things like that, we need them to be 100% in alignment with who we are from a religious perspective. There are a few subjects that we, we don't have full uh, agreement with our, some of the staff and, and uh, our founding precepts. However, they, they work very well with us, and the subjects that they teach aren't necessarily as fraught with complications. So, for example, computer science. So, our, our computer science current instructor, lead instructor. He's a very strong Christian, very committed Christian, and very sympathetic, I think, with with what we believe in in almost every way, but he's not quite there yet. And so we've made allowances. Frankly, there's just not a lot of people out there that have been trained because of the historic hostility or antipathy that particularly Anabaptists have had with education, there's just not a lot of people that we have to choose from. I wish we had many more, and I think we will have many more in the next 10 years. But, but for the time being, we, we have to have, because we're going down the accredited path, we have to have people with doctorate degrees as our faculty. So we've got to bring in people who may not be 100% always aligned at some of those levels. But certainly we are are very, very strong on anything that touches faith and, and, and elements that touch the most important matters of who we are. You uh, mentioned something um, in the audio that we played earlier in the introduction. You mentioned a revolution in higher education. Now, revolution is 180 degrees, mm-hmm. um, and it usually involves more than just one player. Uh, it's a mass movement. Uh, revolutions usually are, and so I'm, I'm, I would love to hear what your your grand vision is. Uh, what what would you like to see happen uh, in terms of a revolution in higher education? Colleges have often played a very unique role in revolution. So, for example, when we think about the civil rights movement, that was was something that was in many ways born out of colleges and universities. So, Martin Luther King Jr., probably the most famous person who who was the leader of the, that movement, he was trained in Boston at Boston University. He did his PhD at, at BU uh, and, and learned many of those ideas and developed many of those ideas that he then went implemented in, in his home area of Alabama. And I see similar potential here where we're, we're bringing in students from all over the country currently, and they can come in and learn true kingdom Christianity, 
learn it very well, have it be in their bones, have it be in just in their heart and their mind and their soul and their bone. I mean, just have it be something that they exude and they're passionate about. And then to, to bring that to all different parts of the United States, Canada, Europe, Africa, and beyond. And so to view Sattler College as a place where we want to very much collaborate, and we are collaborating with all kinds of, of congregations and organizations. We recognize that we're not a church. Sattler College is not a church. We're trying to be a bridge-building organization across many different entities to be able to find uh, the bright, hungry students who want to be strengthened in their faith and then to launch them out. And so I'm very excited because I can even see the early, I and mean, we only have two classes, so it's it's very early, but I can already see our first two classes coming in, having their their convictions dramatically strengthened, and then seeing many different examples of students engaged in, for example, we have a work-study option doing ESL, English as a Second Language, at a, an institution that we have called The Bridge. And so our students come in and they're teaching, they're involved in teaching internationals from dozens of countries that happen to be in Boston. And guess what? Some of those people who have been taught are now part of the church there. And so they're blessing those individuals, those students, and they themselves are, are blessed because they think like, wow, this is something, this is possible. The, the convictions that, that we have around peacemaking, these are not meant to be ethnically bounded convictions that are for one particular, you know, Germanic-based tribe. It's not like that. And then no one would say that. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't gone viral, so to speak, because in general, the churches are not typically in these, these high network very international places where their ideas can really find a foothold and spread at Sattler because we are right in the heart of downtown Boston. We are in, I would say, the ideal place in the United States, maybe the ideal place in the world to have our ideas go out and spread uh, to every every nation out there. So we're very, very excited about exactly what you said, Brother Jan, which is the potential to foment <laughs> this revolution. Why Sattler, um, as far as the name? Uh, what is the significance for some of the, the listeners out there? I'm sure a lot of them know about Michael Sattler, but maybe those who don't, um, what, what is the reasoning behind naming Sattler College? For those who don't know, Michael Sattler was a martyr who lived in, who, who was killed in the 1520s, and he was uh, a monk, a Catholic monk, who left the, his order and joined this fledgling Anabaptist movement, became a prominent leader, albeit short-lived. He was the, the lead author of the Schleitheim Confession, which was the first confession of the Anabaptists, was ultimately captured and put on trial. And he, he, he according to the Hunterite Chronicles, uh, he was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so that fits very well with what we talked about earlier with this proficiency in the original languages. We have, I think it's four different accounts of his trial, and he gave his trial defense in Latin, which is pretty amazing to think about the pressure that you would be in in such a, an environment and to be able to, to do that in Latin. He was sentenced to a fairly gruesome execution, his, they cut out his tongue. His, his flesh was torn out with hot tongs in four places, and then he was burned at the stake. But he did so with great joy, with great peace, blessing those who were his persecutors. And in so many ways is an ideal representative of what we're trying to do. He brings together excellence in learning with, for example, his study of the scriptures, his development and articulation of ideas in the Slytheim Confession. But then this is not some ivory tower academic who's just writing nice ideas somewhere. This is someone who's bleeding and dying on the ground for the sake of the church. And so he, in, in so many ways, brings together the ideals that we want our students to have. Excellence in their, their development of the mind, but also excellence in, in their passion 
in their desire to suffer for the Lord and to also serve the church. So we think he's he's just as as good of an example of of what we want our students to be there. His wife Margareta Sattler was also killed. She was drowned. They were a little bit kinder to the women back then than the men, but she was she was also martyred for her faith. And so beautiful example of a husband and wife team that served the Lord together and died for the Lord together. And we 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 love that he's our uh, his name is at the at the the top of our institution. There's various ways to engage with Sattler. You're on most of the the platforms, Facebook, um, Instagram. Uh, you also have a, a website. Uh, but if somebody, let's say that there's those out there that want to uh, engage on a deeper level and maybe uh, not, not only just learn a little bit more, but um, yeah, just experience a bit of, of what Sattler's about, uh, what's the best way that they could do that? The best thing that they can do is, as you said, follow us on those different channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have a blog that they we put out. So if they put their email address and they'll get the blog post there, uh, that's that's a great way to come. We th- To start following us, we love having people come visit our campus. So we have a an open house. We actually just had it where we invite people from all over the country to come and see for themselves, to meet our students, to meet our, our faculty to come see it and to experience Boston and what life is like for them. So we, we're going to have more of those and those will be posted on our website and through those channels Uh, for students to apply is a great step to do. The application is due January 15th. Uh, They do have to take one of the standardized tests either the ACT or the ACT or the CLT, the classical, the classical exam. They can take any of those our application's free. They have to write some essays about their commitment to be uh, to be discipled and their their Christian convictions. We we want people who are who are serious uh, there, and so we we take uh, very seriously both the academic component as well as the spiritual component. If they apply and get in, then we have a, a weekend, which is a, a great weekend. It's called Admitted Students Weekend, where they come and get tours of our dorms, of our campus. We actually do a little. Uh, ride in a in a boat out in the Boston Harbor where they get to see Boston from a different vantage point. It's a great experience, and so for those who do come in, uh, who get admitted into the school, then they would be invited to come to that Admitted Students Weekend, and they get to bring one member of their family or a friend of their choosing there. And so, and and we pay for half of the costs of their their transport as well. So we think it's a, a great opportunity for them to come see and experience. And so hopefully some of your, your listeners would be interested to come and, and visit us as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I hope that this has been uh, an informative episode for those of you out there. Uh, and if you uh, have enjoyed this episode, definitely go give us a rating um, on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And uh, you can subscribe to our channel and also uh, share this around. I know that I'm uh, inspired by the the vision of what Sattler is trying to do. I really love that statement, you know, equipping Jesus's peaceful revolution. I think that is just, um, uh, it's a beautiful statement. And, and in many ways, I think if, if we're, if we're honest, um, we have, there's so many people out there that have uh, passion and vision and drive um, but we were lacking in that one element of being equipped. And, and I think we need to, to focus on equipping our young people, equipping those in the church, and, um, and being able to, to just go out with every, everything that we can to serve the kingdom of God and to, to bring others into, uh, into this kingdom. So we hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. Um, a, a big thank you to... Um, brother finney who's been here with us and also brother jan for being on this episode uh we've enjoyed our our time together you can connect with us on uh, email we have uh, by our love podcast at gmail.com is the way that you can send questions comments you can also connect with us on instagram at podcast by our love thanks for listening <music>